I did attend his opening speech and that made an indelible impression on me because I remember he didn't touch any papers and he just got up and he addressed the court for two hours and there was pin drop silence. Nobody said a word to him. It's noon on the 9th of January, 1973. You're in the large central hall of courtroom number one of the Supreme Court. There are 13 judges sitting in their high-backed chairs on the raised platform. The portraits of two former Chief Justices stare down from the walls, and Homi Manikji Sirvai is standing up to deliver his opening address for the government. He held all the judges in rapt attention. I can only remember it was a very powerful oration. Sirvai was a very powerful speaker. Whatever he said, the judges were just sitting and listening to him like students. You just heard Justice Rohington Nariman tell us what that was like. Years later, Nariman was to be on this very Supreme Court bench, listening to lawyers argue some of the country's gravest legal questions before him. But on that winter day in 1973, he was a transfixed 16-year-old schoolboy. Welcome back to Friend of the Court. I'm your host, Raghu Karnad. As we heard last time, the court had been hearing arguments in Keshavananda Bharti versus State of Kerala since October 1972. The petition challenged the validity of the 24th, 25th and 29th Amendments. These gave Parliament unlimited power to amend the Constitution and downgraded certain fundamental rights. For two months, Nani Palkiwala had argued on behalf of the petitioners. He told the court that there were limits on what Parliament could change in the Constitution, that it could not alter its essential features, including the fundamental rights. Now, it was the government's turn to respond. The future Constitution of India. All the world admires a deep, well done. H. M. Sirvai was widely regarded as one of the country's finest constitutional minds. The bespectacled 66-year-old Parsi was the first to enter the legal profession from his family when he joined the Bombay Bar in 1929. He rose to the office of Advocate General for Maharashtra. He came to court impeccably dressed in his winged collars and tailcoat, formal wear that harked back to another era. He loved poetry and often quoted Wordsworth and Keats. A staunch teetotaler, Sirvai had made his name defending the Bombay government's policy of prohibition, in court. That's the policy that regulated drinking. He rarely took on more than one case at a time and took only those that he strongly believed in. Sirvai turned down opportunities both to become a Supreme Court judge and later Attorney General for India. His passion project was writing a critical commentary on the Constitution called Constitutional Law of India. First published in 1967, it remains a must-read text for lawyers to this day. 
Well, in uh, Australia, it is very rare to combine a scholar with a leading advocate. But Siavai was both. Justice Michael Kirby, a former judge of the Australian High Court, has extensively studied Sirvai's work. In 2007, Kirby delivered the Sirvai Centenary Memorial Lecture at the Bombay High Court. He told us more about the man. He also wrote his magnificent book. It's a very idiosyncratic book. Um, it's full of criticism of the judges, uh, which most advocates will hold their tongue about in case from the bench they get uh, a bit of retaliation and uh, resentment. He didn't hesitate to criticise and he did it in very strong language. And to an outsider who is uh, brought up in the super polite world of uh, Anglo-Australian, um, Canadian, New Zealand, and even American uh, jurisprudence, Siavai's writing comes as a cold shower. It's, uh, it's really a splash in the face of icy cold water. As Kirby says, Sirvai wasn't the type to hold back. In 1967, he lambasted the Golaknath judgment. He was convinced that the court had made a mistake when it declared that parliament could not touch fundamental rights. Navroz Sirvai, his son, now a senior advocate in Mumbai, was a teenager in the 1970s and helped correct the proofs of constitutional law of India, his father's magnum opus. So I knew dad was absolutely outraged by the judgment in Golaknath and he thought it was entirely wrong and incorrect. He genuinely thought that it was a dangerous proposition in constitutional law to have an unamendable constitution, even if that was restricted to fundamental rights. He thought that virtually no constitution uh, had an unamendable constitution and that it was necessary to give that leeway to uh, parliament uh, in its constituent capacity, if it thought it appropriate and necessary, uh, to be able to amend and that there were adequate safeguards uh, to prevent abuse. That was his original thinking. Therefore, his criticism of Golaknath. Sirvai's vocal criticism naturally made him a top pick for the government. His son Navroz said that Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was determined he should lead the arguments. As the legal challenge to the 24th and 25th Amendments took shape, the government approached Sirvai to argue their case. But there was one problem. Typically, the Attorney General, the country's top law officer, leads arguments in major cases for the government. In 1972, that post was held by Niren De, a 64-year-old Cambridge-educated lawyer who had made his name defending trade unions. Now, Niren De was a very fine man. But he didn't have much tact. Therefore, oftentimes, he was having a lot of brush with the judges. Unfortunately, he was the law officer in, in this uh, case of Gulaknath, bank nationalization case, Pravikas' case, and he was a loser. So this committee said, how can we have him all the time? 
he they, therefore they said let's look for another person this is the late senior advocate tr andhyarujina sirvai's former junior giving a public talk on the keshavananda case he was by sirvai's side throughout that period and had a ringside view of events here he describes the closed door meeting in which sirvai huddled with the committee or indra gandhi's closest advisers ministers hr gokhale and mohan kumar mangalam so these two people our friend gokhale and kumar mangalam met him in the ashoka hotel i was there said mr sirvai you must take this case because we require a man like you to conduct this case it's the most important case for us but yes sirvai said but you have the attorney general this is this said yes but attorney general has lost three cases we want you so sirvai said very well if you want me i'll appear i'll appear for the side of government but on one condition that i will be the first to argue for government not mr nirande who's the attorney general now that was a very awkward situation because the attorney general always has the first strike in any case but he sirvai said it's all right you see the the case was kesar on the bharati versus the state of kerala and then after the state of kerala was the union of india so he says kerala is the first respondent so i'll appear for the first respondent keshavananda's petition mentioned the kerala government as the first respondent or opposing party the central government was the second respondent sirvai believed that if he appeared as the lawyer for the kerala government this would not come off as a challenge to nirende this was a very superficial way of looking at it i said but no mrs sirvai you can't do that attorney general is the first preference you'll create quite a problem and according to andhyarujina it did when the case opened and the petitioners argued their side the two men in their black gowns and white bands sat stiffly together nirende in the first seat and sirvai next to him they barely exchanged any words as palkiwala's arguments progressed at times they even openly disagreed in court none of this boded well for the government then sirvai got very angry he it spread it down in the whole bar that i am going to argue this case first nirande came to know of this great desire of sirvai to open the case and the whole of the bar said mr nirande how can you give up your right as the attorney general it will be a reflection on the bar so he, he was very agitated but some of the other i think indira gandhi said we leave it to these committee people to decide so one day he called me over nirande and said andhyarujina come here he very innocently asked him, your senior wants to open this case i said yes he wants to open this case. i said he is very anxious all right tell him i'll see that he opens the case so i went and told sirvai I said, Nirande uh, has told me this. Sirvai was jubilant. The stalemate ended sometime in December, as the court was hearing Palkiwala's arguments. And then I told Fali Narivat. Fali was that time the additional solicitor general, and every afternoon, uh, Sirvai used to go to his chamber to have lunch with him. 
and Kuro Fali used to listen to all what Sirva used to say. He was a great, very loquacious chap. So I went and told them, look, Nirandir is agreed. They were very happy. So in the evening, they called the tea party in which Nirandir came. Sirva came, we were there, and they became very jolly friends suddenly. <laughs> and uh, then the next day, when they came in Pal, in the in uh, the court, both of them were talking to each other. And on the last day of the term, Nirande got up and said, My lords, on the reopening, that's in January, my friend Mr. Sirvai will open the case on behalf of government because I have to. For over a month, Sirvai had patiently sat and listened to his old friend Nani Palkiwala passionately argue against the government. Both men had started out as juniors in the chambers of the legendary Jamshedji Kanga at the Bombay High Court. They had come a long way from that cramped office where they prepared for tax and commercial cases to now being on opposing sides of this monumental case. One day, during Palkiwala's arguments, the article clerk Yazdi Dandiwala ran into Sirvai in the washroom. Then he asked me, young man, you must be finding it very frustrating not to be able to say anything and only listen to all the things which are being... I said, no, sir, I am finding it not at all frustrating. I am hardly have time to really digest and understand clearly. And <laughs> But I could think for him it must have been frustrating because he could talk a lot. And for him to just sit without arguing for almost, I think, Nani took about six to eight weeks, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Huh? To sit without arguing must have been a difficult time. As we heard in the previous episode, Palkiwala had argued that a parliament with unlimited amending power was a danger to democracy. He put forth the idea of implied limitations, that the constitution contained unspoken constraints on its own amendment. As the clock struck 11.57 a.m., on the cool, wintry day of 9th January 1973, Sirvai rose to respond to Palkiwala. He began by attacking Palkiwala for painting a grim picture. According to Sirvai, Palkiwala's distrust in the government was unfounded. Lawrence Liang, professor of law at Ambedkar University, Delhi, tells us more. Many of the arguments that were being made by Palkiwala were anticipatory arguments or arguments that were anticipatory of certain fears if the parliament does not have any limitation on it, and if they have absolute powers, what would happen if you had a despotic parliament coming into place? And the reliance was on, of course, you know, precedents in the form of the Weimar constitution, leading up to, of course, you know, the Nazi regime, etc. Sirvai said that was a stretch. First of all, Palkiwala ignored other factors that contributed to Hitler's rise, such as the lopsided Treaty of Versailles after the First World War and the economic crash of 1929. Moreover, the amendment provision of the Weimar Constitution wasn't the only one that had enabled the German dictator. Its emergency provisions also played a crucial role. Sirvai said that there was reason to have more faith in Indian democracy. Since 1947, the country had proven that it could handle crises with maturity. Even though an emergency was declared during the wars against China and Pakistan, it never led to dictatorship. We've declared the emergency on several occasions in India, 
most notably in 1962 62 in the context of the indochina war emergency was declared and that emergency continues through ordinance for a long period of time he said even when emergency was declared did the government do something as drastic as abolishing fundamental rights did the government turn authoritarian did no he says on the contrary what happened was elections were held even when an emergency was in place elections were held so he was giving you empirical evidence of what he saw to be a very different experience and experiment with you know democracy compared to the imaginary fears that he thought the other side were posing from the european context Sirwa's argument is that you can't take an imaginary hypothesis or something that has not happened and use that as a basis of reading into the constitution limitations that are otherwise not present. Sirwa believed parliament was supreme. The overall theme of his arguments was that parliament's amending power was unlimited. Sirwa stressed to an almost comical degree on the word amend. Here Sandeep Thakur, one of the lawyers in the petitioners team For three full days, Sirvai talked about the word "amend." I think he read six English dictionaries to find out what the meaning of the word "amend" is. The first three days, Sirvai went on only about that. Chief Justice Sikri interrupted and asked, "Does amend mean destroy?" Sirvai promptly replied, "Yes." If Parliament thought it was necessary to destroy constitutional values in order to improve the country, they were right to do so. Sirvai then attacked the Golaknath judgment, which for the first time had taken away Parliament's power to amend fundamental rights. In a rare interview at his home in Delhi, Justice Nariman told us about his interactions with Sirvai and his memories of those opening arguments. Because I understand that even though Golaknath was abandoned pretty early in the proceedings by Palkiwala. Sirvai still kept on saying that it is Golaknath which is the cause of all this trouble and therefore I must deal with Golaknath. In that case, a slim majority had held that fundamental rights could not be amended. But on closer reading, things were more complex. According to Sirvai, the court had not really made its position clear. So parliament had no choice but to pass the 24th amendment and take back its amending power. Sirvai's arguments had kicked off a heated debate about the correctness of the Golaknath judgment and how each judge had ruled in that case. This was something that the present bench wanted to avoid from the beginning. They wanted him to focus on the scope of parliament's amending power. In mid-January, 10 days into Sirvai's arguments, the bench wanted to move on from Golaknath and the clock was ticking. They'd been hearing the case for almost 40 days at this point. The attorney general Solicitor General and Advocates General of the States were still to argue. Sikri reminded Sirvai that he had to finish by February since the bench had to give its verdict before he retired in April. Sirvai retorted that he would be done well before that as he had no intention of responding to the 800 pages of the petitioner's written arguments. Sirvai carried on with his arguments on the nature of parliament's amending power. Second thing that he says is what is the nature of 368? He says 368 is a self-executing power. What does he mean by this? He says that you know the amendment under 368 can only be challenged on the grounds laid down by 368, which is the procedure to be followed. That's Lawrence Liang again. Article 368 laid out the procedure for amending the constitution. 
but it didn't say anything about what parliament could or could not amend. If, for example, you passed an amendment without two-thirds majority, it can be challenged, but only to that extent. You can't go into the content of the amendment. You can only go into the procedure of the amendment. Sirvai rejected Palkiwala's arguments. He disagreed that the fundamental rights were natural rights, meaning citizens did not possess them automatically. These rights existed only because they were written into the constitution. And by extension, he argued, they could be taken away by an amendment. Sirvai invoked a number of scholarly texts and international judgments to make his points. One Friday, he referred to an Australian case to bolster one of his arguments. According to Anil Divan's notes, it was already three that afternoon. The bench had been listening to heavy theoretical arguments all day. Chief Justice Sikri allowed Sirvai to read out a few passages. Justice Ray interjected. He encouraged Sirvai to read the whole judgment. At this point, Justice Hegde, who was seen to be an anti-government judge, lost his cool, both with his colleague Ray as well as with Sirvai. He accused Sirvai of not answering his questions with the same enthusiasm as he was answering Ray's. Andhya Rujina throws more light on the courtroom dynamics. So there was, first of all, the judges who were divided and they were politically aligned. So they, unfortunately, displayed their mutual antagonism against each other by saying things in the court. There was a very unfortunate thing in which the judges expressed their views whenever any question arose. Sometimes the judges amongst themselves literally exchange words. We had, for example, Justice Hegde was a very vocal judge. So when Hegde put a question, Dre would answer that question and Hegde would get angry and said, look at this, my brother is answering my question. I put it to you, Mr. Sirvai, why is he answering this question? Sirvai typically argued until about four in the afternoon, but he rarely submitted written notes summarizing these arguments. At various points, the bench just couldn't keep up. Matters escalated on the 25th of January. According to Anil Divan's minutes, an exasperated Justice Hegde said that he had made notes on Sirvai's arguments for the first 10 days, but then he gave up. He couldn't keep track. Sirvai was not pleased. His son Navroz told us in an interview. My dad kept had this incredible capacity to keep his cool uh, in court under the gravest of provocation. He told me that years ago, uh, not in the context of Keshavananda, because he said, uh, while it may help you letting off steam, it does your client no good and does the matter no good. He told the judges, and in particular Justice Hegde, that don't worry, this won't happen. Every morning, I will give you a written script of what we argued the previous day which will help you to understand what I have argued. According to Navroz, this significantly increased his father's burden. Remember, these were the days before Xeroxing, and copies had to be painstakingly cyclostyled. The following week, Sirvai submitted two sets of documents outlining his arguments to the bench. The petitioners, the Times of India noted, had submitted 4,000 foolscap pages. The Chief Justice once again reminded Sirvai that the hearings needed to be wrapped up. For his final act, Sirvai launched another attack on essential features and implied limitations. There was no clarity on what Palkiwala meant by essential features. 
and moreover, the whole concept of quote-unquote implied limitations was vague. Accepting such limitations on the amending power would create a great deal of uncertainty. It could also lead to amendments being bogged down by endless legal challenges. Liang paraphrases these arguments. He also said very clearly, in the absence of express limitations, you can't read implied limitations. That's the court becoming a super legislature, right? So you can't invent a new concept. And he says, you certainly can't invent something as vacuous and as airy as basic structure. You can't touch basic structure, you can't see basic structure, you can't feel basic structure in terms of the constitution. If I ask you, show me where in the constitution there is basic structure, you're saying that you can't. He says, you can't invent something which is transcendental. Sirvai believed in sticking to the text of the constitution. The document contained no explicit restrictions on parliament's amending power. Therefore, this power should be interpreted as widely as possible. He said the court's role was only to interpret the law exactly as it was worded. Through this period, Sirvai was often working up to 16 hours a day. He and Andhya stayed at the Ashoka Hotel in New Delhi. At times, he would wake up in the middle of the night, work, sleep again, and then wake up by 8 a.m. for conferences. Even Justice Hegde once remarked that he seemed to be able to pack 48 hours into 24. Between 1969 and 1973, Sirvai was mostly in Delhi, while he was also arguing in the Krishna water dispute. He didn't have any fear about flying, but my mother had lost a cousin in the Shannon air crash in 1946. And so, in one sense, uncharacteristically of, for my, of my mother, she had reservations about flying. So for years, my father used to take the frontier mail when he used to go for his matters to Delhi. When Feroza Sirvai realized this would keep her husband away from home for three or four months at a stretch, she relented. So Sirvai took the Indian Airlines flight to and from Bombay to spend the weekend with his wife and their three young children. The four years that he was in Delhi. Though he used to come back every Friday and go back every Sunday, he would write a minimum of three letters, one a day, to my mother, every single day. It would just be an inland letter. Uh, sometimes it would just be a page and a half. Sometimes it would be two pages. But every single day, he would write a letter to my mother. About a month into Sirvai's arguments, on February 6th, Justice M. H. Beg took ill. Remember his name. We've already met him as one of the judges picked by the government for the Supreme Court. He'll be important later in this story. For now, Beg took ill, and the case was adjourned for a week. When they resumed, Sirvai took aim at the basic structure argument. He said every provision of the constitution was essential. He also told the court that if the people of the country wanted to replace the current parliamentary system of government with a presidential or monarchical system, they could do so. With that, his arguments drew to a close. As agreed, the baton now passed to Attorney General Nirende. Let me tell you, he was a towering personality. Not this is senior advocate A.K. Ganguly. As a young lawyer, he frequently worked with Nirende. As he used to walk down his stairs from his office down to the Supreme Court corridor, 
we have seen as lawyers out of reverence you know people would leave way for him to move in to walk through so it was not very easy to communicate to him not very easy to approach him not that he was unapproachable but the you know his uh, the aura was such in the only publicly available photo of him there has a square jaw and is gazing hard at the camera through his spectacles his hair slicked back he studied at presidency college calcutta and then went on to cambridge university once he was back in india he fought for the trade unions when they had few legal protections through this work he ended up in contact with political leaders in the 1940s they first served as an additional solicitor general when he appeared for the government in the golaknath case a year later he was appointed attorney general for india He then went on to lead arguments in the bank nationalization and privy purse cases. In his arguments, they first took up from where Sirvai left off. His first question is is there any provision in the constitution that restricts the power or limits the power of the constituent of the parliament exercising constituent power to amend the constitution? His argument was that we have adopted a written constitution unlike many other countries. and we have adopted uh, one of the lengthiest constitution at that time for the length the object was for the constituent assembly to spell out in detail as much as possible so that you avoid a scenario of someone developing some other concepts outside the law like sirvai they too fired back at the essential features argument he asked what was the point of the amending power if it were only meant for inessential things he claimed that parliament's amending power was unrestricted and essential for responding to the changing nature of society justice hegde who had previously clashed with sirvai now went after they palkiwala's junior colleague thakur gleefully recalls hegde was after his blood he kept on asking questions The only obstruction Niren Day had was from Hegde. A running theme through Day's arguments was the importance of the directive principles. You'll recall that the constitution contained directive principles as ideals for governments to follow. Here's where Day laid bare the Indira Gandhi government's thinking. In so many words, he told the court that the directive principles were more important than the fundamental rights. When he made this point, Justice Jagan Mohan Reddy interjected, "Quote, in your opinion, to provide social and economic equality, you have the right to infringe on fundamental rights?" They shot back, "Only a few are affected. Their so-called fundamental rights will be infringed, but millions would get economic means to enjoy these rights." Here's Lawrence Liang. So Niren Day's arguments on parliamentary supremacy in many ways were reflective of an idea of absolute sovereignty uh, in terms of political power right and that absolute power then extended to a translation into what ideological policies and laws were actually implemented in the this, indira gandhi government's case this meant policies such as the nationalization of key industries the government supporters hailed this as a necessary step towards building an equitable society to end monopolies and increase production 
For instance, by January 1972, the government had taken over 214 private coking coal mines and plants. After the new amendments, their owners were powerless to challenge such actions. So, the idea of a committed um, you know, parliament in terms of an ideological parliament that's very, very, very strong uh, in its pushing forth of certain reforms, in its pushing forth of certain kind of, you know, equitable laws, all of these were beyond the pale of the court and beyond their remit to be able to question. That, that's primarily his argument. Remember how at the end of his arguments, Palkiwala had embarrassed Sirvai by reading out an old article he'd written? They had some court craft of his own up his sleeve. One day in March, he told the bench he would be reading excerpts from the parliamentary debates of the 1950s on the First and Fourth Amendments. He then proceeded to read out the remarks of one particular Rajya Sabha MP. That MP had said Parliament had the power to amend fundamental rights. Who was that? None other than Justice Hegde himself. Hegde had served as an MP before he became a judge. After reading aloud, they concluded, I am adopting, with respect, your Lordship's reasoning as my own. Soon after, they wrapped up his arguments. After they, Solicitor General Lal Narayan Sinha argued for a day and a half, and the Advocates General of various states also had their turns briefly. As is the practice in all such cases, Palkiwala would now get the chance to put forth his rejoinder. There was only about a month left for Chief Justice Sikri's retirement. So the days were short. Now, if the case went on beyond the 25th of April, the whole case would go fat. And the government was, would not be too unhappy with that. So he said, you must finish the case, all of you gentlemen. And then Sikri disclosed that he would go abroad for 16 days. Nobody knew why he was going abroad. So all these constraints of time were there. Then we had the holy vacation. So Sikri said, we will cut down the holy vacation for this case. And we will devote three days of the vacation for this reply by Nani Palkiwala. Palkiwala came out swinging against the notion that fundamental rights had to be violated in order to implement the directive principles. He stressed on what he described as the totalitarian elements of the 25th Amendment. He said it would destroy the identity of the constitution and convert the country from a democratic republic to a totalitarian state. He used the word totalitarian so many times that at one point Justice Grover asked him to avoid the word. According to Palkiwala, Article 31c was so lethal that it violated seven essential features of the constitution and abrogated ten fundamental rights. He argued that this took away the fundamental right to practice a profession. The government had so far taken over large industries like mining, banking and insurance, saying it was for the common good. But Article 31c put other professionals, like lawyers, doctors and architects, also at risk. There were also other, more far-reaching implications. It would infringe on Indians' rights to free speech and dissent. For instance, newspapers could lose their independence if the government decided to nationalize them by saying it was for the greater public good. In another example, he said, citizens would be deprived of effective legal representation if the government suddenly decided to nationalize the legal profession. Palkiwala was just hitting his stride, but on March 22nd, things took a drastic turn. The Chief Justice called all the lawyers to his chamber. 
Anil Divan's carefully typed up notes, now yellowed with time, offer a peek into the drama that unfolded there. Only 11 of the 13 judges were present. The Chief Justice informed them that Justice Duvedi was indisposed because of an upset stomach. But more seriously, Justice Beg had a heart ailment and had been advised a month's rest, including a week in hospital. Sikri then read from his medical report. Andhya Rujina gives us a play-by-play account of what happened and the stakes involved. The Attorney General Nirande was there, Sirvai was there, Palkewala was there, Chakla Daftari, I was there. And Sikri said, gentlemen, Justice Beg is in hospital. I have been this morning to the hospital and I have met his doctor. And doctor says he's suffering from high blood pressure. And doctor says he'll have to stay in bed for about a fortnight. <laughs> we will therefore have to use the word drop him. Now, if you drop Vague, the scales are turned dramatically in favor of the petitioners. And then Sikri said, yes, but he's sick. And gentlemen, I won't have his death on my hands. When he said that, Palkiwala's side was very happy because if you drop one person who is pro-government, they stand to gain. On the other hand, on government side, they would lose this man. So, immediately when this was said, Nirande got up and said, My lords, we protest against this. And Sivai said, We also join in protesting against this. The government's lawyers were insistent that Palkiwala submit written arguments so that even Beg could read them. According to Divan, Sirvai jumped in to point out an inconsistency. If he had to submit written arguments because of a lack of time, then why could the other side not do the same? And there was clashes between the judges on one side and the counsel on the other and Palkiwala on the other. So Nirande said, in that case, Mr. Palkiwala, you will give your written submissions instead of oral submissions. And we will close the case. Palkiwala was very angry. I have got only two days to give my oral arguments and you are preventing me from doing so and all that. And then Pandirande said, if you close this case like that without big, I have instructions of government to withdraw from this case. And Sivai said, I also withdraw from this case. And uh, there was a lot of tension there. And then Higde said, if they are going to threaten us like this, openly. One day they would even say, you write my judgment in our favour. It had come down to this. Either the matter would continue without one judge, tipping the scales in the petitioner's favour, or they would have to wait for Justice Beg to recover and risk running out of time to finish the case before Sikri retired. Sikri said, very well, gentlemen. We'll meet in court and we'll consult and tell you. So we went to the court, waiting for the decision. An hour passed, and the registrar came and said, Gentlemen, the Chief Justice said, we will meet in court tomorrow. At 10.30am the next day, everyone assembled in court again. Justice Beg was notably absent. Before Sikri could say anything, Palkiwala stood up to address the bench. He had a concession. Palkiwala got up and said, My Lord, I have reflected on this whole matter and I am congenitally incapable of submitting to any coercion but in the interest of justice and to prevent any further acrimony I will submit written submissions for my reply. Please give me two days for that. I 
will give my written submissions in full by Sunday morning and the case may be closed but if any case any of your lordships are not there the case will be decided without them this was the perfect solution now all the judges including the bedridden big would have access to palkiwala's arguments without losing more time sikri said mr palkiwala we are grateful to you we accept your offer and the case is now closed that was the whole tension came to an end like that palkiwala gave his written submissions the police case was closed the judges would have a month to confer and collate their thoughts which way would it go would parliament stand supreme would indira gandhi have her way in the next episode we'll return to april 24th 1973 one of the biggest days in india's legal history a day of confusion courtroom maneuvers and drastic reprisals from the government until then i'm your host raghu karnad Friend of the Court is a project by the Anil Devan Foundation. Thank you to the guests on this episode: Eki Ganguli, Lawrence Liang, Navroz Sirai, Justice Michael Kirby, Justice Rohinder Nariman, Sandeep Thakur, and Yasdi Dandiwala. The show was written and researched by Bhavya Dore and Ramya Bodupalli. Legal research and fact-checking was provided by Aishwarya Chaturvedi. The scripts were edited by Supriya Nair. The show was produced by Gaurav Vaz. Audio production and music score by Sachi Rajatyaksha and mastered by Ayan Dey. Lawrence Liang, Ranveer Singh, Sham Divan and Vivek Divan were advisors on this series. Special thanks to Anand Thakur, Geeta Sehgal, Homi Ranina, Lalita Kumaramangalam and Vimal Thakur.